Good morning, everybody. So joining us on Zoom, we've got uh, Jeff and Keith and Mark and Joe, and here I've got uh, Julie and Boris. So we get to look at uh, one of the key Dharma tools for all the Buddhist traditions, regardless of which one we're talking about. Uh, they all have to come to terms in some fashion or another with the hindrances. The things that hinder us from liberation, from awakening, the things that keep us mired in the samsaric realm, the realm of dukkha. So they are, it, it's appropriate, I guess I'd say, that they are the first segment of the, uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of, uh, of uh, dhammas, which are sometimes referred to as objects of mind, mental objects, but Analayo uh, discusses how that is somewhat problematic, taking it in that sense. The reason being, uh, one, one of the principal reasons being that uh, a couple of chapters later, when we look at the six sense spheres, uh, the sixth sphere is mind. You know, there are the five normal senses. And then in Buddhism, mind is the sixth sense. And uh, the sense spheres are looking at, at, uh, at the senses and their objects. So it would seem that mental objects is, uh, is talked about in that section. So as Analayo puts it in terms of, of what this piece of, uh, of mindfulness is actually concerned with, are specific mental qualities, such as the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors, which kind of pair up with the hindrances. We'll look at that to some degree this morning, and then we'll be back to that again in a few months when we do come to the seven awakening factors because the awakening factors act as kind of uh, counterbalances to help us uh, work with the hindrances. Just to use as, as a quick example, uh, a very obvious one, one of the hindrances is, is sloth and torpor. And one of the awakening factors is energy. So that's a real, clear, easy one to spot, but it's not the only pairing. 
so these are mental qualities. The hindrances are, are uh, negative qualities and the awakening factors are affirmative, uh, positive qualities that help uh, lead us forward on the path. And then the other three segments of, of this uh, section of the Satipatthana are looking, their analyses of experience that kind of drop them into separate categories, uh, beginning with the one we'll be looking at next month, the five aggregates, which uh, would be important for us to look at for, for several reasons. One of which simply being that we're always chanting the Heart Sutra and uh, in that particular text uh, outlines the five aggregates and their emptiness, form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. Uh, in a nutshell, it's our sense of self and we can divide it into those five packets. And then along with that, there, there's the six sense fears. Again, an analysis of our experience, how we come into contact with, with our world, and then lastly, and, and the concluding section of the Satipatthana is the Four Noble Truths, which is an analysis of experience into specific categories. Dukkha, suffering, and the liberation from suffering. So Analayo goes on then to describe this uh, section as, uh, as uh, these mental factors and categories constituting central aspects of the Buddha's way of teaching the Dharma. And it, beginning with the hindrances, uh, as I was beginning to suggest earlier, uh, is, is very appropriate because it really does begin there. We need to uh, direct our mindfulness to the states of mind that are hindering us from our practice. Otherwise, we really can't uh, can't carry forward this kind of a practice because we'll constantly be getting knocked off path and not getting back on it again. We have to become aware of what is hindering us. And as we'll see, usually, Mindfulness itself is the cure for the hindrance, simply to be aware of it.
which is why mindfulness, when we do get to the seven awakening factors, mindfulness is the first of those because it's really instrumental. And it applies to all of the hindrances. Something like energy is particularly suited for dealing with sloth and torpor. But mindfulness deals with the whole package. So without the removal of, of hindrances, we, it really does prevent us from having deeper understanding and realization of the profound truths, the Dharma, they're being conveyed to us through the Buddhist teachings of the Buddhas and ancestors. Because due to the hindrances, that's what yokes us, ties us to our samsaric existence, to clinging and attachment. To the causes and conditions of our mundane existence. The only way to be able to break through that is through the awareness, the mindfulness, the mindful awareness. So ultimately, where this practice is leading us is, and and this is what constitutes the final part of the Satipatthana Sutra, is the Four Noble Truths. So all all of the preceding sections of the Satipatthana Sutra is to bring us to this state, to this place where we can fully comprehend the Four Noble Truths, which in the Theravadan tradition, in connection with the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth Noble Truth, the Noble Truths equate to right view. Right view in the Theravadan tradition is understanding, living the Four Noble Truths. So that's where this whole project is headed. So the hindrances are blocking our progress towards that. The awakening factors, conversely, are leading us down that path. 
which is why they are the section that immediately precedes the section on the Four Noble Truths. The awakening factors, the seven, end with equanimity. And from equanimity, we're, we're ready for practicing with the Four Noble Truths, opening ourselves to the deeper understanding and realization of the view of reality that that teaching sets forth for us to be able to enter into that. Until we arrive at this place of equanimity, we're being pulled by our attachments, by our aversions, and so on. Which is why the section we're gonna be focusing on this morning, the hindrances, is so critical because they begin with desire and aversion. The things we grab onto and the things we push away from. Clearly, the contrary practice to the practice of equanimity. of being present with what's arising, but without attachment. Without clinging, without craving, if we put it in the context of the uh, 12-fold chain of dependent co-arising, which just leads on that wheel, one link to the next to the next. And rather than approaching equanimity and, and right view, we're moving further away from it. So one of the things though, that's important to understand, and we've encountered this, uh, this, uh, uh, truth about the Satipatthana Sutra previously, it's that uh, realization can take place while uh, you're engaged in any of the Satipatthana contemplations. Every practice that we've looked at is a gateway to realization. And that's important to understand because that certainly directly relates to our Zen practice and the teachings that have been handed down by our uh, Zen uh, ancestors, certainly Dogen. That the way, the truth, the teaching is right here in front of us in this very moment. So what's being laid out here for us is, it, is basically a path. 
but don't get caught up by that to the point where you lose the insight that's always being set forth to us through Zen teaching that, that, that the truth is right here. That it's not about some progression following a path. And yet, to follow a path is a skillful means way of of actually being able to open ourselves to this kind of realization. Which is why it's it continues to be practiced for all these centuries since this teaching was first set forth. So one of the key components that that lies behind this section of the Satipatthana, the contemplation of dhammas, is the recognition of the conditioned nature of the phenomena that that are under observation. Everything is conditioned. This is a core teaching of Buddhism. The conditioned nature of all things. And that's what the 12 fold chain of dependent co arising is depicting. So uh, it's, it's uh, sometimes said that. Uh, that when one sees dependent co-arising, you see the entire Dharma. But this is really a core uh, to the whole of of Dharma teaching. And I want in that vein, because uh, it's a subject that isn't that, that widely uh, available in terms of uh, works in English. But uh, one of the uh, texts that I have found particularly uh, uh, insightful and helpful in this regard is titled Under the Bodhi Tree, Buddha's Original Vision of Dependent Co-Arising. And it's written by Buddha Dasa Bhikkhi. I'll just hold this up briefly. Uh, under the Bodhi tree. Uh, and Buddha Dasa uh, uh, Bhikkhu uh, wrote another book, The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, which is uh, about the teachings of emptiness. So he's a, uh, a Theravadan uh, uh, monk who, who 
has written a couple of really important texts. The first one of his that I read was uh, uh, The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. And then when this came out, uh, I immediately picked it up too. So in terms of uh, being able to access uh, in a more in-depth fashion, uh, the teachings on dependent co-arising, uh, this is at least of, of the books that I'm familiar with. Uh, this, I, I think, is, is, is the best one uh, to kind of open, open yourself up to, to that uh, uh, package of teachings. So let's turn our attention now to this particular uh, section dealing with the hindrances and uh, and how they relate to conditioning to causality uh, because the contemplation of the hindrances uh, is not just talking about the presence or absence of the hindrance although that's certainly a core piece to it but it's also looking at the conditions underlying either the presence or the absence of each hindrance. So it's not about just seeing the presence, let's say, of restless worry. But if it's there, what is the cause of that? And if it's not there, to understand the underlying conditions for its absence. So I wanted to just read uh, for you this section of the, uh, of the Satipatthana so you can see how it's, it's laid out addressing presence, absence, and uh, the underlying causes. Uh, so it begins, if sensual desire is present in him, he knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in him, he knows there is no sensual desire in me. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise and how arisen sensual desire can be removed and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. If aversion is present in him, he knows the same you know, set of, of, uh, of conditions. And, uh, and likewise for uh, sloth and torpor and for restlessness and worry. And finally for uh, doubt, which, uh, these five constitute the, uh, the five hindrances. So these, these are the different sides to practice of awareness of the hindrances. And these mental qualities that are uh, described by each of the, the five hindrances, 
they are termed hindrances because they hinder the proper functioning of the mind. And if I, I, I looked up the, uh, the Oxford definition of proper, of course, there are a number of, of uh, different shadings to the definition of that term. Uh, but one that I think is, is, uh, tr is clearly uh, appropriate for this usage is uh, truly what, some, what uh, something is said or regarded to be genuine. And this, of course, points to this, uh, this way of seeing awakening as to awaken to things as they really are. And it requires a proper functioning of, of the mind to be able to see that things as they actually are. Otherwise, if we're uh, hindered by one of these five mental factors described here, then our, our experience, our view is clouded by that particular hindrance, like restless worry. We can't really be fully present with something, letting it be as it is and being with it. Restless worry is an agitated state. And in an agitated state, we can't have the stillness, the presence to, to be with things as they are. And obviously in the realm of desire and aversion, similar issues arise. And we have that subjective response to the thing rather than being able to experience it just as it presents itself to us. We might use the term objectively in a more detached way. And another aspect to the hindrances that, that I know we've, we've talked about previously uh, is they're preventing us from being able to enter into uh, concentrated states of mind. So in the practice of the jhanas, as 
uh, one of the best examples of this. This is part of the formal that formal practice is to uh, direct one's awareness to the, these five uh, mental factors uh, described as the hindrances and to be aware of either their presence or their absence. And it's through their absence that one is then immediately able to enter into a concentrated state of mind. But if they're present, you cannot enter into that state of mind. So in terms of concentration, uh, they're kind of like the gateway. If you don't uh, work with them, you cannot enter into those states of mind. And of course, right concentration is another of those uh, elements, uh, parts of the Eightfold Path, which at this point, I want to uh, put in a, a, a plug for the, uh, the Buddhist cheat sheet that Jeff uh, uh, drew up, uh, because for all of these things I'm talking about, the five hindrances, you'll find them on, on that list. The Eightfold Path, you'll find it on the list. The five aggregates. Uh, it's, it's a really wonderful listing of all of these uh, lists that are skillful means for our practice. Hopefully everybody still has theirs from when I first emailed it out. If you don't, uh, just let me know. Drop me an email and I, I will get you one. Even uh, Susan Raykow, uh, who's uh, on our email list, uh, she just asked me within the past week uh, if I could s send it to her. She couldn't find her copy of it. So uh, even outside of Crooked River Zen Center, it's... It's getting used and Keith just put it up on Zoom for our uh, uh, Zoom participants this morning. That's what it looks like. Because some of these lists are, are really important to, to kind of take in and and have at your immediate disposal. So I'm not a big proponent of memorization, but, uh, but uh, something like the five hindrances or the uh, eightfold path or the six perfections, the paramitas, you know, there, there's some of them that are pretty good to, to kind of work with and, and kind of uh, take them in so that you have them at your ready disposal. You can easily incorporate them into your practice. Because concentration is basically a unification of the mind. Lario uses this terminology and I think it, it's a really apt description. The mind, in, by being unified, 
can now be present with whatever arises without being clouded in the way that each of the hindrances impacts us in our experience of the world. So to, to, to go over dealing with, with hindrances and beginning with the, uh, their relationship to, to various awakening factors. I've already mentioned sloth and torpor and energy. There's, there's restlessness and worry and then one of the awakening factors that, that pairs nicely with this one is tranquility. And then doubt is one of the hindrances. And one of the awakening factors, actually the second one, is investigation of dhammas, investigation of, of our experiences of the objects that we encounter. But as I've suggested, the most powerful practice with the hindrances is simply mindful awareness. Take aversion. We can uh, frame it even more specifically as anger. Just being aware of the anger and being staying present with it is usually sufficient to be able to let that go, to, to move beyond the anger. So mindfulness, which is the first of the seven awakening factors applies to everything, all five hindrances. And that's why the importance, why they're, they're part of this uh, section of the Satipatthana Sutra. Mindfulness of the hindrances allows us to pass through. And if mindfulness in and of itself isn't sufficient, then there are other uh, skillful means, ways that we can approach it. Like anger, you know, there are practices like loving kindness. Or greed on the uh, uh, desire side from that particular hindrance. Yeah. Developing uh, the paramita of generosity, 
So we have all these practices that are laid out for us through various Buddhist teachings that are there for us. Which is why lists can, can be helpful and, and becoming familiar with them. It helps us if, but they only help us if we practice mindfulness so that we can be present and aware of hindrances as they arise and be able to skillfully work with them. Otherwise, we're just trapped in that wheel of samsara, of suffering. And it's a wheel, a wheel that we never get off of for any extended period of time. We keep getting right back on it again and again and again. And any respite from it tends to be pretty short-lived. So we use the term transformation in Buddhism. And that's really what's being pointed to, is developing the facility, not to eliminate dukkha from your life, it will arise, but it's the ability to, to transform it when it arises and to do it time and time and time again. That's to become liberated. And the more we practice in that vein, the less it does arise, but it still arises. Just the nature of our existence. But as long as we can be aware and practice with it, it's no longer the problem it used to be. We're no longer bound by it. We experience it, but we can move beyond it. That's the liberating piece to it is that we're no longer bound. It still comes up, but it's okay. We know how to practice with it. As Uchiyama Roshi would put it, it's just part of the scenery of our life. And we all have our own scenery. So being able to work with the hindrances and remove them with development of things like the awakening factors, it's a necessary condition for realization.
So one of the uh, great features to, to what we're looking at here is to, to see that, uh, that, that this practice of mindfulness really is uh, this amazing way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. It's, it seems counterintuitive. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, restless worry is, is a hindrance to meditation. No, just put your attention fully on that. When it arises, Go there, just like with anger. Go there, be fully present with it. That's where you direct your full attention. That's meditation at its most powerful. And that's kind of manifesting this, uh, this Mahayana teaching of non-dualism that samsara and enlightenment are not two different things. That right in the midst of samsara, there's awakening through this practice. If we go right there, go to it. But it's, it's practicing with it rather than just being engulfed by it and letting it play its part in the wheel of dependent colorizing, hooking you. And you're either attaching or you're averting from it rather than being present. I mean, this practice keeps coming back to this act of presencing, just being with. It's not about trying to avoid anything. It's just understanding how we get led astray by things. So we're not trying to avoid them. We need to meet them as they come up. And through that, they're no longer the problem that they used to be. And it's only through the practice that we really get to see that. And that brings up another point that I know I've mentioned before, but uh, uh, can't be emphasized enough, I don't think is that this teaching is a practice. You cannot look, take it on the way we often take kind of approach what I'll call study, just working with it conceptually. The Satipatthana Sutra is something that we have to work with. We have to do it. It is a practice.
And in that regard, just to kind of flip back to comments I was making earlier that any part of the Satipatthana Sutra can be the means to, to realization. It's through the practice. It, it, that, this is kind of pointing ahead to Dogen's practice realization. That practice isn't a, isn't a means to realization, it is the realization. And I look at this in the context of, of a tendency that I think we all can have to want to take on more and more practices. That can become problematic because that's really not the point. It's not about how many practices you have some knowledge it's about how deeply you immerse yourself into any practice. Truly, one practice can, can be all you need. In fact, it's only through a practice that one can have realization. It's part of this notion that realization is right here in front of you. So that's a real important thing to, to bear in mind. Is that whatever practices they are that really fully engage you and work for you, that's the important thing. It's not about trying to to uh, become master of many, many different practices. But it is definitely about embodying these teachings, not just studying them and getting a conceptual idea of them. And that's, you know, this, this practice of Satipatthana is one of the most powerful practices in the whole realm of Dharma. And I mean, just speaking from my own uh, experience with it, uh, you know, when I did start working with it, I mean, it was wholehearted 100%. And it was doing it. On uh, Layo's book was, wasn't out by that, at that point in time, this is going back a number of years, but uh, the, the books that I would read on it, it was simply to help me, guide me on my practice between the books and, and Doksan with my teacher, it was, it was simply to be able to embody it. And that's what it comes down to. It's doing, doing it, not conceptualizing. 
but the powerfulness of it. I mean, it's small wonder that it's uh, becoming in our time uh, uh, a practice that's gone beyond Buddhism. It's being practiced far more generally because it is so powerful. But from a Buddhist perspective, and this is what I've I've uh, uh, said about it in the past, it's it's one element of this whole Dharma realm. So, uh, if if we just shrink the Dharma realm down to the eightfold path, you know, it's one part of the eightfold path. So when it's taking taken out of the Buddhist context and practiced in the secular world. It, it fit into a different context. To practice it as a uh, Buddhist practitioner, uh, now, you know, it's, it's uh, allied with things like right view and right intention and right speech and right action and right, right concentration. These all fit together with right mindfulness. But that's not necessarily the case when it's yanked out and planted into a different context, like a workplace. So hopefully I at least uh, made the point about this being a practice, that it is something we have to do. With the added uh, uh, just caution in there about, uh, and generally if people take these teachings in that vein of being a, a practice, it's, it, uh, it can help to maybe uh, uh, ease some of the uh, uh, movement to try and uh, become knowledgeable about many different things. I mean, this was part of something I had to practice with too, certainly. So another point I wanted to, to make here is, and it's uh, one that Analayo, uh, uh sets forth in this section, uh, talking about the simple recognition that mindfulness represents uh, constitutes uh, a, a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Just this, this act of presence, of bare awareness, of meeting, meeting each thing that arises. Not pushing away, not indulging, because we, we have the positive 
feeling about it and we want to hang out there for a while. Just bear awareness. And he also talks about how the uh, the deity uh, Mara, the, the great temptress, often acts as a personification of the five hindrances. And loses her powers as soon as she's recognized. In terms of being able to personify it, mythologize it, that's really what lies behind that imagery. Is to see Mara's presence kind of causes its influence on us to disappear. It's insight. And Analayo gives an example here of, uh, of, of anger and it's arising, which in our physical body, leads to an increase in the release of adrenaline. And then that increase further stimulates the anger. So that's how uh, these hindrances become kind of self-perpetuating. It's a good example. But so it takes a non-reactive agent to enter into that process, to be able to to stop it. And that's exactly what mindfulness is. Think of it as this non-reactive agent that we add to that kind of a cycle that gets started. It literally, as he says, puts a break on that vicious cycle. because of its non-reactivity, that's key. That's what being present with is about, is not being reactive, just be present with. As it is, in its suchness, the causes and conditions that bring it forth, see it as such. Now you're meeting it in terms of what's really there rather than the narrative that we spin to more fully engage that cycle that's gotten kicked in. Part of like if it's anger, Part of that cycle, along with the adrenaline and all the other physical aspects, there's the mental aspect. The thought, the thinking aspect. All the thoughts that are supporting our feelings of anger. Because our thinking is in reactive mode. 
So through mindfulness, it really is kind of like a, a chemical agent being added, this non-reactive agent that, that puts the brakes on, it slow, slows that cycle down. The power of mindfulness and working with the hindrances. So that we're able then, looking ahead to like the seven factors of awakening, we're able to investigate dhammas. We're able to really uh, experience the energy that we all carry within us. How much of our energy is drained because of the hindrances in our day-to-day life? It really does kind of give us uh, a renewed sense of, of energy and joy. It's one of the factors of awakening. Being free from hindrance is a joyful state. You don't need something wonderful to happen to you. Actually, just the dropping away of hindrances and and realizing that is joy. And tranquility, concentration, equanimity, uh, this whole array of the seven awakening factors opens up for us through this practice. And we're now then seriously on the path without hindrance. And when a hindrance arises, we're able to work with it. We're able to practice with it. So the state of mind that is free from hindrances is sometimes referred to as luminous. And I I like this quite a bit. Uh, So luminescence, the state of being luminous is, uh, is the emission of light by a substance that has not been heated. So our, the moon is, is an example much used and definitely much used in Zen of this kind of luminous object. It's not generating the heat to create the light. It's simply reflecting the light that's there, the light of the sun. It's luminous. So to come to know this luminous nature of the mind is in fact an important requirement for the development of the mind. It's really what 
the practice of being present, of being mindful, is. It's nurturing this luminous nature. So in Zen, the term uh, or, or the object mirror has been used by a number of teachers. Of course, one of the uh, chants in our chant book is the song of the precious mirror, Samadhi. It's referencing this kind of luminosity. I remember uh, a few years back, a uh, talk I gave at Jokoji during a Denkoe session when the, uh, the theme of that session was, uh, was that uh, poem by Dongshan, the Song of the Precious Mirror Samadhi. And I just talked about the title of, of the poem, The Precious Mirror. And I compared it to the, uh, the James Webb telescope that's, that's going to be going up into space uh, in the near future, it looks like. Uh, which actually consists of 18 different mirrors conjoined together, working together. You know, and it, it struck me what, what a rich image for, for the Dharma. And, and speaking of all these teachings, you know, each teaching is like a mirror. But they have to, if as practitioners, you know, the important thing is, as we uh, acquire more mirrors, as we, we uh, uh, learn additional teachings, is to be able to array them so that the light that they are reflecting, the source of the light obviously being our experience, reality, that they're reflecting them in a way in a unified way. So from that standpoint, each basket of teachings is simply expanding our range. Which is, of course, the whole purpose of the James Webb Telescope, to see deeper into space. So our working with our mirrors, our Dharma mirrors, is kind of looking more deeply into our nature and the nature of all things around us. And part of what we're mirroring are the hidden things like the hindrances, the clashes, the afflictions. If we try to push those away, that's just another form of aversion. We're having an aversion to our hindrances, to our, our clashes. We haven't really 
gotten through that. We're still caught by that hindrance. So the practice goes all the way, even to the poisons themselves. It's not about having an aversion to them, getting angry about them. It's about being a mirror to them, but a non-reactive mirror, non-reactive. That's the heart of mindfulness. So to come back to the text as I read it and looking at uh, the uh, kind of the the diagnosis of either there's a presence or an absence of a hindrance. And then there's the awareness of the conditions that have led to the arising of a hindrance. And that assist in removing a hindrance that has come up and further that can prevent future arising of a hindrance. So in, in medical terminology, we're kind of working with uh, uh, diagnosis to, to see what's there, the cure to be able to address the, the uh, causative elements and prevention to prevent it from, from coming back again. So it's easy if we see it in this light to, to really understand what what's involved here. Because in terms of physical afflictions, we we get this, we get this. And actually on uh, page 192 of the text, uh, he has uh, a simple little uh, uh, graphic here, Uh, for each of the five hindrances, knowing the presence or absence of, you know, sensual desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. Uh, Then on the the, uh, right side of of this graphic, uh, if it's arising, knowing the conditions that lead to arising. If it's present, knowing the conditions that lead to removal. And if removed, knowing the conditions that prevent future arising. Pretty, pretty basic stuff. Could, could, could have been ripped off from a med- medical textbook, a basic primer, right? Mm-hmm. 
so there's I didn't want this morning to get into uh, a lot of detail uh, on each of the five hindrances. Uh, other than maybe doubt, 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 I think is probably one that uh, I should say a little bit about. But I mean, obviously, things like uh, uh, desire, aversion, restlessness and worry, slothfulness and torpor. Uh, these are things that I think we have uh, a pretty good understanding of. And, uh, and I think Anlayo's text is, is pretty, pretty good at uh, giving some suggestions as to how we can practice with it. You know, he, he gives some, some uh, uh, good advice on things like sloth and torpor, which we all go through periods of that. Uh, being able to to visualize light is a good uh, uh, means by which one can help to offset that or changing one's posture. Or, you know, it's one of the reasons why walking meditation exists is to kind of get our bodies moving. In fact, some Buddhist traditions uh, uh, don't limit kin hin to the very slow uh, style that we use. Uh, some traditions use a pretty fast pace. We don't really have the kind of space that would be, be uh, good for doing that. I mean, if we had more than a handful of people here, we'd be bumping into each other if we tried to do a power walk around this space here. But that is a really effective way of dealing with sloth and torpor. So, but doubt, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's a, that's a tricky one because the doubt that, that constitutes the hindrance is a really, uh, kind of a foundational doubt as opposed to just having uh, the questioning mind is actually a positive thing. That's why investigation of dhammas is one of the awakening factors. Investigation of things is led by questioning, looking more deeply into something. So that without that, you know, it would kind of uh, be a, a killer of, of energy in, in a sense. So to have this inquiring mind, curiosity is, is not the problem. The problem is when one is, is really mired in that deeper type of doubt, almost a nihilistic type of doubt. So sometimes it's been described as, as doubting your true nature that 
kind of like well, people will often come into the practice and and come to a conclusion that well they they just can't do it that they they don't see anything there that that would uh, cause them to continue there is is no buddha nature They, they and if there is, there's, there certainly isn't such a nature within them. And that kind of a doubt then just kind of completely puts the barrier up on the path. Somebody's not going to continue to practice. That's the kind of doubt that's uh, that poses the hindrance. They have questions is actually a real positive. It's a natural outgrowth of being engaged in something, caring about something, and really looking deeply into it. And because there aren't any final answers (laughs) in Zen, uh, questions are actually ways to kind of open open us up even more. But we have to become okay with the fact that there aren't any final answers. But the questioning continues. And that's what's of supreme value. So that's why I wanted to, to say a bit about this, this uh, aspect of doubt, because if, if we misunderstand doubt, which is easy to do, that can become a big problem. So in terms of the foundational forms of doubt, if... You know, one of the paramitas is patience. To not be looking for some sort of immediate verification, confirmation. To be able to hang in there. So there's an element of faith, you might say there. Not faith, belief in, in some supernatural entity but just kind of faith in the practice that everybody has to have in order to to really stick with it and then there are you know points of, of verification that will arise for us but we have to stick around for those to to even have a chance of of coming forward and then those are ultimately what overcomes the sense of doubt. So I think the only way that we can really work with doubt is to just continue uh, investigating, continue practicing. 
and hopefully, usually, there will be these insights, these aha moments. Doesn't mean the great Buddha's enlightenment, but you know, just a sense of verification that one might actually be on, on, on the right path here, enough to keep one moving forward. So I think this is a good place for me to, uh, to end my, my part of this. Open it up for Yeah, Mark. Did you? You're opening up for comments. Yes. Yes. Well. My first comment is thank you so much for this uh, talk today. I, I really found it very, very helpful. And um, I, my plan is to be a devoted uh, student of this chapter because I really, really connected and related so much to everything you had to say. And I know I've heard most of this stuff before and I don't know what happened but it just like really clicked in for me this morning <clears throat> and it's uh, I, 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 it's 7 a.m well it's 8 30 now but you started at 7 a.m this morning I didn't even have a cup of coffee yet at the when you started um, and I also wanted to say not to puff you up or anything but I listened to a one hour um, talk last night on YouTube, and it was a very good talk by a, a guy by the name of Joseph Goldstein. Oh, yeah. On, uh, and his talk was specifically on the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, Part 15, Mindfulness of Dhamma Hindrances. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was really specifically related to this. And, um, I don't know, maybe I wasn't fully awake listening to him, but I, it was a good talk and I found it very helpful, but you blew him out of the water. Not to, not to compare you with Joseph Goldstein, because I feel like I've heard of his name before and he's, he's rather um, high up on the. He does. Uh, in fact, he wrote a book uh, called, called Mindfulness that's on the Satipatthana Sutra. It came out uh, after Anilayo's book, but I have that, I've, I've read that, and he is one of the, uh, the big guys in, in terms of mindfulness. So you picked a good person to, uh, to access for that kind of teaching. He is, he's one of our great mindfulness teachers, no question. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've listened to him before, but I, I plan on listening to more of him. But to be honest with you, I'm going to listen to this recorded talk again before I listen to his. Not to puff you up, uh, I appreciate <laughs> but I'm, for some reason, I, 
I really, really connected with how you um, how you brought this all across, and um, I, it just made it very um, what's the word? Uh, easy to digest and um, for for me to take in and and relate to on a on a real practical level. So uh, thank you. Uh, I did have one question, but I think you probably already answered it because it was something I wrote down earlier. What about of identifying thoughts during meditation and letting letting them go like clouds or saying to yourself, thinking, um, because, it, you know, I've, I've heard some of uh, some practices, I, I don't know, I was listening recently to, uh, uh, who was it? Somebody, I was listening to a cast, um, uh, Insight Meditation Podcast, maybe, and they were talking about letting, you know, when the thoughts come, uh, say, thinking, and so the idea is to let the thoughts go. But with this Sadi Patana practice, you were talking about um, meeting them, meeting the thoughts as they come up uh, and going there and giving it your full attention, practice with it rather than being engulfed with it, not trying to avoid anything. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that practice of you know what I in the um, insight meditation where they're talking about um, letting the you know trying to let the thoughts go like they're clouds or um, sort of extinguishing them by labeling them as thinking right. rather than this practice of you know going um, go, going not avoiding them I guess. Right, right, and and actually, I think they're they're just different ways of looking at the practice, but it's the same practice. Uh, what I guess I'd point to in terms of what I had laid out this morning is the non-reactive side to this. So when they're talking about just labeling it as thinking and then letting it letting it go, uh, it's it's kind of, it's being present with it so that you can see that a thought has arisen, but you're not reacting to it because the way we normally engage in our thoughts is we do get fully engaged and they start generating additional thoughts and we get lost in our thoughts. Until finally, you know, a few minutes later, we go, oh, I need to come back to my breath or whatever it is we're, we're, we've been using as a point of focus, if we have a point of focus. And uh, it's, it's the same thing, because if you don't see the thought and let it go, then uh, you're going to become reactive is the tendency. So what, what was being laid out here is to see it, to be present with it, which is just 
the, equates to their seeing and labeling it as a thought. Oh, this is a thought. Uh, but not to engage any further in it. You've met it. Don't react to it. Don't feed it. But don't push it away either. Just let it go. As Uchiyama so beautifully puts it, opening the hand of thought. When we practice mindfully, we're, we're opening the hand of thought and just letting it, if it stays, we'll stay with it, but in a non-reactive way. We're not, we're not going to get engaged in the thinking process. We're just going to stay with it. And same with anger. You know, we'll stay with the anger. We're not pushing it away. We're not having an aversion to our anger. But we're, we're paying attention. We're with it. We're present with it. And the, 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 the power of mindfulness is that most of the time, that, that is opening the hand of thought. And it will dissipate. Because that's its natural tendency. They just pass through. When they don't, it's generally because we're, we're reacting to it and we become part of the cycle. We're joining it, literally. Yeah, it can be, it can be sort of like a fly that you swat, but you don't hit the fly and it keeps coming back. <laughs> You're like thinking, 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 thinking. You know, it's like, you're swatting your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're not leaving. You can't yeah. kill them. We're kind of like Norman Bates. We see the fly and we go. Thank you. Um, I, I read one of the books by one of the books by Dalai Lama expressed a, a way of meditation that he uses in in his school of thought and he referred to it as and it was a two types of meditation and I'm assuming that what he was talking about was insight versus mindfulness he called it analyzing and stabilizing and, and he works this into the meditation constantly. So for a while he's analyzing, for a while he's stabilizing. So practicing mindfulness and practicing insight, um, letting go of things for a while and then focusing on them and giving them the, uh, his full attention. Um, is, am I reading that right? That this is uh, a comparison of mindfulness versus insight? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the analytical uh, uh, style of meditation that the Tibetans use, but I I haven't uh, seen that uh, set set forth in conjunction with the the stabilizing because the the stability is generally uh, seen as be as arising from concentration from focusing. Mm -hmm. And then the insight is kind of, 
it works hand in hand with that because it's it's from the stability that we can see into things more deeply. So it makes perfect sense as you describe that to be able to, with some intention, uh, work between those two aspects of the practice to make sure that uh, it actually, in our chant book, the uh, guidepost of silent illumination, Hong Ji, who, who came, um, was, is in our lineage, he's a few generations prior to Dogen uh, and had a huge impact on Dogen and Dogen's understanding of, of the practice of Zazen. Uh, he talks about, uh, for Hongji, it's silent illumination, the guidepost of silent illumination. So the silence is the stability, and the illumination, of course, is the insight. And he talks about how being uh, just caught by one side or the other of that is can be a problem. You know that if you're just caught in uh, in the uh, in in the uh, silence, uh, it, it's kind of like uh, uh, I think he calls it wasted dharma. It's like you're just kind of in this uh, very blissful, still space, but but you're not really attaining insight, deep understanding, and yet if you're in, plugged into the understanding mode, but without the, the silence, without the stability, it's kind of like you're, uh, you, you, there, the danger is you get caught up in thinking mind. And, and it can become kind of almost an excited, agitated state. So it's bringing those two together that's kind of the the magical formula of, of Buddhas to bring them both. Mm -hmm. So I, I love the description of the Dalai Lama's practice. That's that's silent illumination. That's it. <laughs> it's zazen. So it, it really all shakes out to pretty much the same practice. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to agree with Mark. I found this, uh, like the explanations of today, very helpful. It made it, it sort of connected things that weren't connected there before me, such as just the Four Noble Truths are uh, right thinking, I think, or, or rights. Uh, right view. Right, right view, yeah. Uh, and um, can you go more into uh, the sort of what Joe was just talking about there, the difference between um, concentration and 
you know, just the analyzing of thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the, the analytical piece, because the concentration I, <coughs> is probably the easier of those two for us to get our, our uh, th to have some clarity about in terms of being able to just enter into these samadhi states where we're focused. I mean, that begins right out of the gate if we start working with our breath, you know, be the breath, just, uh, uh, there's no longer uh, me breathing, there's just the breath happening. And it's kind of the self dropping out of the picture, uh, the emptiness of, of the five aggregates. Uh, the thinking, this is where uh, we, can, we can get caught up in our thoughts and, and it gets kind of sticky when we look at Uchiyama and his excellent teachings on practice of zazen of opening the hand of thought. So what he's pointing to there is that when we're doing zazen, we're not engaging in the act of thinking. In fact, Dogen, which we're starting uh, to look at Fukad Zazengi, I mean, he describes zazen as, as not thinking, non-thinking. Uh, that's very essential through the practice we're, we're opening ourselves up to insight so we can have these experiences of, of direct seeing which is what insight is it's, it's seeing into it's not thinking about it's not conceptualizing but it's direct seeing the intuitive self to, to actually get it. So the role of thinking, which can be very enticing, is not zaza. That's, that's the, the important takeaway here, I think, is it's not about thinking. Uh, but then people talk about, you know, looking at a thought and exploring it. But I always think of Uchiyama more of, you know, if you open your hand of thought, you're just sort of uh, like letting it go. You know? right. right. So we come, and it, this is, comes back then to this notion of non-reactivity. Because our way of reacting to the thought is to to just kind of get pulled in and, and one thought leads to another leads to another. And we just keep going down that path. Now, the amount of analysis that, that we were looking at directly from the Satipatthana is this kind of diagnosis, cure, and prevention. So there is some analysis there, but, but it's, it's a very uh, 
focused analysis. And, and that's by design. I think it's important if, if anger arises to have an awareness of, of what is causing that and my response to that. But, but we also talk about how our, the thought process feeds the anger because we start building the narrative around it, the supporting story usually about why I am angry, my justified anger, my righteous anger, and that whole path we get started down. Uh, we need to be careful with that we can have some analysis, but it still stays in this non-reactive mode. So that's why I love this term non-reactivity. It really is a beautiful description of just being able to be present and not add to the thoughts. It's okay to have that uh, basic analysis, but that's, that's it. Because uh, if we go any further, the hand, Uchiyama's hand no longer stays open. <laughs> it starts to close in on on our storyline. And now we're fully engaged and we're no longer just present with it as we were when it was first arising. But we've actually started to, uh, to get engaged now. So it's, it's, it's just, that's why this is a practice. There's, it just, uh, uh, you know, it's not about if it was about pushing away or, or grabbing onto, those would be the easier ways to go. Mm -hmm. We'd understand that, but just to be present with, hmm, boy, that's that's a little more interesting. Thank you. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right, so enjoy the rest of your weekend. Looks like we're going to.